Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't had a chance to do so yet and you are a fan of my podcast, please take a moment to go to iTunes and leave a rating or a review for me. And you can follow the show on Facebook as well at Most Notorious. Thank you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenis. Well, I was kicking myself for not getting a Christmas interview in time for an episode last week. But as I was perusing the internet on Christmas Day looking for future topics, I came across a book. And I contacted the author, and he was gracious enough to make time for me this week. So this is a very fresh episode, and I hope still in time to keep with the holiday spirit of the season. My guest today is Alex Palmer journalist and author. We're going to be discussing his book called The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man and the Invention of Christmas in New York. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Eric, for having me. Your book is about John D. Glock. Quite a character this gentleman was. Let's start with him. Uh, Talk about his background, if you will, his personality, his life up to the point where he organized a bullfight in New York City. Yeah, and that's kind of where the book starts because it's kind of a good lens into who this guy was. Um, so, So Gluck was born and raised in Brooklyn and then his family was out in New Jersey and his father had been in customs broking, and that was kind of the family business. That's what Gluck went into when he started working as a young man, just as a customs broker. It wasn't the most fascinating work, but his personality started bubbling up during this time. He really wanted more. He wanted more excitement in his life. He was This was New York during the beginning of the 20th century. This was when movies were really starting to become a, you know, a, you could go to movie theaters in the you know, 1910s and beyond and uh, mass media. He was seeing these exciting stories about people doing interesting, exciting things. And customs broking didn't really do that much for him. He was starting to get a little bored with it. Uh, so he started kind of moonlighting as a press agent on the side. He found ways to bolster events and, and people and, and uh, talk to journalists to, about what, uh, you know, these other events and activities that were going on. So one of his first clients as this sort of side job of being a press agent was in Coney Island. They were having what was the first bullfight in New York. It was presented as an educational bullfight because they couldn't legally bait animals and obviously you couldn't actually kill a bull like they would in uh, Spain because of animal cruelty laws. And this was 
even, you know, now, of course, that's a controversial activity. Back then, it was just as controversial. There was a lot of people that, that, that kind of protested this, ha- having an event like this. So, But it also created this g- huge amount of excitement. The tickets sold out, and Gluck really saw this as an opportunity to kind of kind of his entree into promoting these major events and giving getting a lot of attention uh, in the press for something that was kind of exciting that had people talking and he jumped into it with both feet it became a, a kind of major event uh, but ended up when the event actually took place the structure hadn't been built maybe quite the way it should have the bull ended up crashing the the gate into the crowd and created this massive uh, uh, kind of scandal where the the SPCA and some other animal rights people were there. They protested that the bull was being injured, and then there was the upset at the crowd being uh, almost impaled by the bull. Nobody was hurt, fortunately, outside of the bull. But Gluck ended up being arrested along with a handful of the other people involved in the event. So it was kind of a disaster, but also a publicity coup. So he came out of this event having tried to pull off this this event that that uh, that, that went sideways, but also kind of exhilarated by doing something that got so much attention and that was really getting people talking. So that ended up sort of setting the stage for what what would become his career from that, that point forward. So he's definitely gained some notoriety at this point, as as you've just mentioned, but but some confidence at his ability to pull off a publicity stunt that catches lots of attention. But of all the, the directions he could go at this point, he chooses an odd one. He petitions the post office to be put in charge of all the letters addressed to Santa Claus. Why does he decide to go this route, and how does he get chosen for it? Yeah, and I think that's another insight into his kind of quirky personality. He he seems, in, in researching this, this character and all his different schemes and projects over over this couple-decade period, it's... He, he, his, the consistent thing he seems really interested in is taking on these projects that excite the public imagination, that get everybody talking. And that's his priority. It's not necessarily to make money or to do a lot of, you know, good, even though both of those things result from some of the projects he takes on. But it's really this getting people excited. And Santa Claus is something that at this time is a, maybe one of the most exciting things going. With the post office, so that it's there's surprisingly quite a bit of controversy around Santa letters going way back to you know the beginning of the the 19th century. But at this point, kind of the early 20th century, Santa letters had started. Kids were in the practice of writing letters to Santa. They started to come to the post office and really pile up. And these post offices had sometimes thousands of letters that kids would send to Santa that there was nowhere to deliver them to. There was no Santa Claus home address where they would go. So they would generally just send them to the dead letter office, which was a place where any letters that couldn't be either returned to sender or uh, couldn't have an address found for them would go and they'd just be destroyed. So this upset a lot of people, especially in the, 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 the press and the public were saying, well, we have these, innocent petitions from children asking Santa for gifts and we're just destroying them. This seems like a shame. So facing this pressure, the post office in 1911 finally changed the policy that they would allow local charity groups or individuals approved by the local postmaster to answer the letters. So in any given city, if somebody wanted to come forward and answer the letters, they could do that uh, as long as the postmaster gave it the okay. So you saw a lot of these groups popping up all kind of throughout the country. There'd be little quirky, different kind of groups that would that would jump up. But in the biggest city in New York, nobody came forward. And so again, the press was asking, why, you know, why hasn't Santa Claus come to New York? Uh, so 1911 came and went, 1912 came and went, and no, nobody came forward. And then 1913, as is entering the third year, where these letters were were available if somebody wanted to take them. Gluck, with his mix of both interest in sort of exciting the public imagination, but also his business background, where he had been this customs broker and had a pretty was pretty savvy businessman uh, in, in kind of both what he'd learned in in the business and just with, with other contacts he'd made, had this real sense of 
we can approach the answering of Santa's mail from a business perspective. We, we, we should approach it as a businessman and, and in a very efficient way, find a way to, to do it without a lot of overhead, not, not seeing this as a charity, but as a, as a service that could be done with the kind of efficiency you might approach customs broking or, or other businesses at the time. So he put himself forward to the postmaster and said, I should, I, I think I have this sort of unique blend of, of ability of being able to, you know, tap into my press contacts, but also my business contacts and turn this into a really unique kind of particular offering. And also something that almost made him sort of cosmically qualified to play Santa Claus. Gluck was actually born on Christmas day. So that made him almost the perfect guy to play Santa Claus to New York uh, since the postmaster didn't have anybody else, and Gluck seemed to really have a lot of ideas about how he wanted to handle this. He ended up giving Gluck the job. So in 1913, Gluck created the Santa Claus Association, and, and him and a group of volunteers were there to answer the letters that, uh, that the post office received. So it was evident pretty early on in that first year that Gluck was way over his head, at least initially. What were some of the challenges that he faced early on? Yeah, so when Gluck created the Santa Claus Association, the idea was this is going to be not a group that takes every letter that the kids send to Santa and it's not the group that would then buy the gift or make sure the kids' wishes were, were fulfilled, but that it would be more of a clearinghouse for these letters. So they would get a letter from Jimmy asking for a new uh, toy car. Uh, and then they would send that letter to a donor, somebody who volunteered, maybe a wealthy person in the city, or even just somebody who has a little, wants to do a little something for, for a kid. So then they would send that letter to the donor who would answer it themselves. And they could either deliver the gift, they could send the gift to the child directly, the address would be included in the letter, uh, or they could even personally go to the house and hand the letter to the kid. And, and that gave sort of this extra personal connection to what the Santa Claus Association was doing that, that differed from what, say, you know, a red, the Red Cross or, you know, a group that, or the, the Charity Organization Society, which was, was a major group at the time, somewhere where you might just cut a check, send the money in, and then, you know, hope that it went to the right thing, but likely just went to a good percentage, went to overhead just to, to keep the, the organization running, and then maybe a percentage went to the kid. Santa Claus Association was saying, we're just here to facilitate this connection between a generous donor and a, a grateful uh, recipient and, and just kind of create all these great Christmas moments. So that was the idea when, when it was launched. And for the most part, that worked, except there ended up being, as you said, a few more complications to the process. Uh, first, the the volunteer base that Gluck put together, there was there was quite a excitement around it right off the bat. A lot of young secretaries from the local businesses would, would come out during their lunch hour or, uh, you know, society ladies would really love the idea and came out and, and, and helped. But it was a little, sometimes the, the workforce, because it was all volunteer, could be a little unreliable. So it wasn't necessarily uh, there wasn't a consistent flow. Also, a lot of the letters, they had sort of calculated, okay, there's a few hundred letters that come in. That's what it had been in, in years past. We could handle that, no problem. But then as they started going through the letters, they realized each one is asking for multiple gifts. So they had to kind of coordinate that with there'd be kids not just asking for themselves, but they'd be asking for several siblings. So that would expand the the effort to try to get these answered. But then probably the biggest issue was as word started getting around because as soon as the Santa Claus Association launched, the press loved it. They started reporting on it all over the place. All the major New York newspapers were covering it. Uh, it, was, it was a touching story, this idea that Santa was finally going to be answering his mail. But what that ended up doing while it brought in more volunteers, it also created more demand. So there were more children writing to Santa. Once they found out Santa was actually asking his mail, it was double, triple the letters that had been received in years past. So it ended up just being this huge volume. Uh, and it was looking a little dicey for Gluck whether he could actually pull this off. He didn't really have the volunteer base, didn't really have the way to investigate a lot of these letters and confirm that the kids were in need. Because
because that was a, another element of the Santa Claus Association that he felt set it apart from other groups that had tried doing something similar was this wasn't just automatically answering the letters. They would actually have a whole process where they would verify that, that the kid hadn't already sent in a letter. They would try to confirm that the kid was actually in need. So they would send a letter to the parents saying, your child has reached out to Santa asking for a gift. Can you confirm that they do need the gift? So the parent would check a box in this letter. And if, if the kid was indeed in, in need and the parent couldn't personally supply the gift, they would say yes and send it back to the Santa Claus Association to confirm. Uh, and then in other cases, they would need to actually investigate whether these gifts uh, were, were needed. So this created a lot of a lot more kind of overhead than Gluck had initially expected. And that snowballed so that by the time the actual, uh, you know, as, as Christmas was approaching that first year, it was starting to look like this might not actually come together. Things, of course, were much different for children in 1913 than they are today. What were some of the things that children asked for in those letters? Yeah, it really ran the gamut, uh, but surprisingly, quite a few of them. You know, there'd be sort of the the standard toys and things. And actually, this was an era where mass production was starting to really take hold. So you would see more things like, you know, teddy bears or, or things like that, that were sort of brand name items. I think it was later you'd see like Lincoln Logs and Raggedy Ann dolls and early branded toys started to pop up more, but there was also a lot of requests for necessities. So they would just ask for things like soap. Even kids asked for coal, some of them, which was now we think of as the punishment for when you're naughty, you get a hunk of that in your stocking. But at this time, these families actually needed that to stay warm. So there were some real uh, heartbreaking pleas. There was some weird ones too. There was a kid who asked for a glass eye because his was broken. And there were a few kids that asked for these really elaborate gifts as well. Uh, that, and those were the ones that might get flagged by the association as, does this kid really need this? They would ask for a you know, really expensive train set that was far more than what the average person would really be willing to just give to a kid as, as a charitable case. It would be hard to really justify that. So it really ran the gamut. And it was on the association to kind of assess which of these was was the most worthy. And some things would come in and it would be families that clearly needed more than just a, a Christmas gift. And those they would set aside for the Public Welfare Commission, which was a, a New York City group that was responsible for overseeing the running of charities and public public charities and efforts like that. So they they had to kind of maneuver all these different issues as they're getting these letters. What started as this straightforward kids ask for a gift, you deliver the gift, turned out there was a lot more complexity to it. It's not as simple as that. It opens up a lot of other issues. And and one of the things Gluck was much was was very um sensitive to was this concern about investigating the letters because in years past, they when attempts had been made to answer Santa letters, one of the big issues that had come up was that the, the there was no consistent investigation. If the letter came in, maybe the kid needed something, maybe it didn't. It raised a lot of concerns that maybe these kids don't actually need what they're asking for. And that was something that groups had been shut down in the past in other cities because they'd failed to sort of have that verification. So Gluck was extra sensitive to make sure they were doing that because he didn't want his own group to get shut down as a result. So despite those early glitches, the Santa Claus Association pulls it off at the end. A complete success. Donations of money continue pouring in, and he he collects a lot of money, doesn't he? Far more than he needs. That's right. And and as I'd mentioned, sort of the impetus of this group when, when it was first created, the idea was this was not going to be a group that handles gifts. It doesn't handle money. It's just there to connect different people. It's, it's sort of crowdsourcing the role of Santa. But first, as as it catches on, it's clear people just want to give. There's a lot of, a lot of people answer letters. Thousands, the first year, thousands of, of children's letters were answered. But also a lot of checks came in as well. People heard about the group and Gluck had mentioned in an interview that, you know, we need to put a two cent stamp on each letter that goes out to the parent to verify that the kid needs the money and every little note that goes to the child. 
And this mention of the needing of postage meant money was rolling in. People heard about it and really responded. Then there were other charity efforts that, that people got excited about, things like uh, John Barrymore, a, a major play he was putting on. He put on a, a benefit show. So one of the one night, anybody who went and saw this John Barrymore play, all the proceeds went to the Santa Claus Association. That brought in a few thousand dollars, which really should have covered its stamps for several years. Uh, even if you're just sending two cent stamps, that covers quite a few. But Gluck continued then asking for, for more money. He saw other opportunities and mentioned uh, things like office supplies and stationery and these other things that the Santa Claus Association would need. So this sort of the early beginnings of a shift in the group's mission where it had initially been just about being this clearinghouse. And now it started to be a place that accepted donations and, and uh, was looking for, you know, for, for other ways to expand. At one point, Gluck found himself in the midst of a kidnapping case, a boy named Jimmy Colwell. Can you talk about what happened? Yeah, it was, it was a wild case. It was a couple that they had recently divorced, and then the, and the it was the mother and her young baby, just a, a, a young child. I think he was just a couple years old, and he was kidnapped by the father. He he vanished. So this was, I think, sometime in the summer that this this had occurred. And then the mom was heartbroken about it. She she got the police involved. They weren't able to find where the father had absconded with the, the child, and for months this this had gone on and with no no breaks in the case. She had this letter that she had kind of written with, with Jimmy the year before a letter to Santa that was just kind of for sentimental. They'd never sent it. And for sentimental reasons, she said, well, you know, I'm going to drop it in the mail this year. Uh, and she sent it. Well, then when the Santa Claus association tried to answer it, they, they received it at their, their headquarters when they tried to answer it uh, and learned about Jimmy's story, they, took it on themselves. So the Santa Claus Association said, well, you know, we we know other people in other cities. Maybe we can try to track this down. And they they had employed the, the volunteer help of this Boy Scout group called the United States Boy Scout, which was distinct from the, the Boy Scouts of America we know today. It was this separate group that, that had been helping out. They had had some, some sort of field offices as well in, in other cities and were able to track down information about the, the, the kid between them and, and the sort of society ladies that were in charge. They were able to find enough information to, to, to track down the kid and, and uh, the father. And he was uh, eventually returned to the mom. But it's this pretty crazy extension of the group's mission where it, this is, you know, not part of uh, what it was meant to do initially, but ended up doing this, this kind of exciting kidnapped saving uh, thing. And, and that, of course, earned it a lot of headlines as well which was obviously something that John Gluck was all too happy to get. Let's talk about another interesting little situation that played out in 1914. A painter, pretty famous at the time, named Peter MacDonald. He was kind of a, a predecessor, you write, to Norman Rockwell, had created a painting called Golly. Can you explain the controversy surrounding this painting? Yeah, so... Peter McDonald, he, he, similar to Norman Rockwell, as you said, he was kind of this painter of Americana and, and a very, really popular at the time. His paintings were very, were, were, were highly uh, prized. And he especially made this one for the Santa Claus Association. It was called Golly. It was a young uh, African-American girl coming out to like, it was a little Christmas tree that she was uh, seeing on, on Christmas morning. Uh, and they had had it in their office. They, this, this was a, an image they used among others for the Santa Claus Association seals that they'd sent out, sort of like I think the Red Cross does now still that uh, you, you can actually, you know, you pay, you donate X amount and then they'll give you these seals that you put on your Christmas gifts or letters and things like that. So this image was one of those that they had included in their seals, but Gluck had the original painting uh, hanging in the Santa Claus Association office, which was, was pretty valuable. It was worth a few thousand dollars. And that was then in the height of the Christmas season, as things were really getting, getting crazy, somehow the painting went missing. Uh, and this was then reported in the press. Some, you know, some cold-hearted person has stolen this painting from the Santa Claus Association. Someone's robbed Santa. So 
again, as they had done with the kidnapping case, they sent out these this troop of Boy Scouts were scouring the city, going to different um, you know pawn shops to try to track it down, and no leads were, were found. But it gave the press a couple days uh, of stories just of this hunt for the missing painting. But then a couple months after the Christmas season and in, into 1915, this scraggly looking person was seen coming into the Santa Claus Association offices and dropped off this package wrapped in paper. Uh, when they opened it up, they realized it was the painting and it had a note signed, uh, the meanest thief, uh, apologizing for having taken it and uh, describing how he had heard about this painting and taken it, but not realized who it actually belonged to and realizing that it was for such this, this great charity group. Uh, he felt so much regret that he had to return it. So it created this really charming, happy Santa story, similar to the kidnapping where it's this really heartwarming tale that also seemed a little too perfect, but also there, there wasn't the, the press didn't really raise too many questions about it. it just seemed like too great of a story not to report. Uh, and it was reported and, and became kind of part of the Santa Claus Association lore. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I mean, some bedraggled-looking thief is going to steal, of all things, a painting from the home of Santa Claus? Pretty suspicious, I'd say. Very, very suspicious and a a little too perfect. Like the kind of thing, a a lot of these kind of stories that pop up, uh, you know, I think of the stories you hear hear today that that kind of go viral. You'll see a really heartwarming headline on Facebook and be like, "Mm, that seems a little too perfect. And then sure enough, a couple days later, I think we just recently had that story of the, the... the, the, the department for Santa Claus with who had a, a child die in his arms who went to the hospital bed and then that turned up out to be not quite as uh, accurate as, as it first was reported. I think these are sort of precursors to that kind of viral heartwarming story that maybe is too good to be true. So I want to ask you about Gluck's compensation. Explain if you would how he compensated himself. My jaw dropped a little when I read this. Well, and throughout 
the Santa Claus Association, he he held fast to the the story that he wasn't collecting any money. He wasn't getting a salary, that nobody there, it was all volunteers. But he was also leveraging his work with the Santa Claus Association to run some other kind of similarly organized groups. I'd mentioned the United States Boy Scout earlier, and this was one of kind of one of his more prominent projects that he took on. He he really shifted from being this full-time customs broker to being more of a freelance charity fundraiser. Uh, and turned out that was a very lucrative field at this time. This is when World War I was really taking off. There was a real sense of, of uh, national feeling, patriotism. People wanted to, to give and to kind of help greater causes greater than themselves. And Gluck identified this opportunity and took full advantage. He joined up with this United States Boy Scout group. It, it had initially, these boys kind of helped volunteer with the group. They went out and investigated some of the letters. But then Gluck, as, as he's helping promote all the good work these Boy Scouts are doing, you know, helping track down the missing painting or the kidnapped boy, uh, he ended up taking on a job with them where he was fundraising for them. Uh, and that would be going out and, you know, sending letters to people asking to donate to, to this, you know, patriotic mission this group was doing, or even, uh, you know, actually going to, you know, business leaders and asking them to help contribute where they can. But he would be getting upwards of 40% of whatever these donations were. So he was getting a, a pretty sizable portion as well as getting paid a salary as one of the sort of executives of the U.S. Boy Scout. So he repeated this sort of scheme with a lot of other groups as well. He would create his own groups and put in ads in the newspaper, something like a you know anti-narcotics league, and say, well, if you can just donate to this, we're going to help, you know, put a stop to, to drugs in, in America. And, and a kind of the height of World War One when there was a lot of, concern about German spies and things like that, he, he launched this citizen secret service, which was conveniently sounded very similar to the U.S. Secret Service, but a completely different organization. And it encouraged people to sign up and you, you will be, you know, help to defend your country from, uh, from spies. And also, you know, your money will go to a good cause. You just have to, you know, cut a check and then we'll send you a membership card. So he was creating a lot of these organizations and being compensated pretty well. A lot of money was flowing in. Uh, so that was kind of the way he was earning a lot of money. Now, he held fast to the claim that at the Santa Claus Association was, was distinct from his soliciting work and his fundraising work in, in that he was not accepting any money. He was just doing it out of the goodness of his heart. But there'd be good reason for suspicion of that, you know, even from the earliest days of the group of just how much he was doing it out of the goodness of his heart, how much he was actually getting some compensation in the meantime. So an anonymous letter was sent to the U.S. Secret Service, and it suggested that John Gluck might be a German spy. Uh -huh. Who wrote this letter and what was their evidence? Yeah, and that's one of the most peculiar twists. So this is kind of in the midst of Gluck coming under some scrutiny for these groups I just mentioned, like the Citizen Secret Service that had kind of uh, concerned, uh, so, so, you know, some some people saying, well, what, you know, is this affiliated with the government? What's the connection? And then this letter arrived. It goes you know, all the way to the top of the investigative apparatus of the United States, where it had apparently been, it was an anonymous letter, but it was somebody who had volunteered for the Santa Claus Association and had gotten these whiffs or these hints that Gluck might not be all he appears, that he seems like there's something, there's something fishy going on with him and that she suspected he was a German spy. He was German by, you know, his, his grandfather had been come from Germany. Uh, so he was ethnically German, I guess. The work he was doing with the Santa Claus Association was actually making a, a particular effort to aid young German children, immigrants, under the auspices of this is a way to show them how great America is and what the U.S. has to offer. So it was kind of a, a, a way to ingratiate them to the, to the national values was how Gluck framed it, but how this anonymous letters kind of laid out the case that 
this was more an effort where he was, uh, you know, doing some sort of suspicious, shady German spy type things. Uh, so that caught the alarm of the government and they got plenty of tips like this during during this World War One era when there was a lot of concerns about espionage. So the Bureau of Investigation, which was kind of the precursor to, to the FBI, uh, ended up sending someone to look into it. So they kind of tracked down different contacts of Glucks, all these various projects he's been doing, looking into the Santa Claus Association. They even went to his office and looked through papers that he had. And they found plenty of reasons for suspicion for a lot of the kind of reasons I laid out and some other things that are in the book that, that red flags everywhere. But in the end, they couldn't really get him for being a spy. That was something that was hard to really pin on him because despite all these very suspicious things he was doing, I, I forget the wording that in the final report, but essentially the guy concludes that it looks like he's not really out to undermine America. He's just in it to make some money. And he's he's just doing these activities for his own benefit. And that's sort of the conclusion that's drawn on this report. But there's not enough to bring any formal charges against him as being a spy or even criminal uh, charges because he's slippery enough. And charity laws at the time were loose enough that there was no real way to uh, to, to actually prosecute him, uh, at least in a way that would bring, uh, you know, actually result in, in a conviction of any kind. So Gluck grew disillusioned with the Santa Claus Association for a bit, even trying to, to give it to the Salvation Army, but but they didn't want it. Eventually, he managed to breathe some new life into it with movie stars Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Could you talk, if you will, about the rebirth of the Santa Claus Association? Yeah, and, and sort of as that you know, investigation had been going on into him. There'd been another investigation into the Boy Scout, the U.S. Boy Scout, which, as I'd mentioned with the Citizen Secret Service, the U.S. Boy Scout was very similar as as a organization that sounded a lot like another legitimate organization, in this case, the Boy Scouts of America. So it was a, a group that people knew about, and they would donate to this other group, thinking they were, uh, you know, making a contribution to the other. And all of this kind of got exposed eventually. You know, the Citizen Secret Service, the, the U.S. Boy Scout eventually was shut down because of a pressure from the Boy Scouts of America, who actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court to chop them off, uh, and, and they succeeded. And it all was covered in the press. It was Gluck was exposed really as a, as a charlatan with all these other groups. But one group that wasn't exposed for whatever reason was the Santa Claus Association. And he did, yeah, he did try to, at that point when he'd kind of been humiliated and, and exposed, this was around 1918, he, he was going to just wash his hands of it and turn to other things, but not, not able to get the Salvation Army to take over and not being able to find someone else to take over the works, the, the group's work. These Santa letters kept coming in. So he wasn't interested in answering them anymore, but there was nobody else who'd come forward to take them over either. So there was work to be done, whether he wanted to do it or not. There was these letters piling up. So as the 1920s began, he he still was a pretty savvy player in the press and still had a lot of connections in the press and knew how to tell a great story. So what he started doing with the Santa Claus Association, whereas kind of its first few years, it was all about him. He was very front and center. Whenever it was talking about the group, it was always about his unique genius at putting this program together and how he was able to come up with the perfect way to answer these letters. Instead, as, as he had been sort of chastened in, in, in the public eye, he, he sort of slowly started reentering his work with the Santa Claus Association by taking more of a back seat, at least publicly, where he would tap the kind of prominent businessmen that had participated in the group in years past. This uh, retailer, Samuel Brill, who was a, a major retailer, him and his brothers at, at the time, uh, and, and also a major fan of Santa Claus, he was happy to take over the position of president of the Santa Claus Association. It was really more of a performative role, but he would, at least was it was his name that was signed to uh, letters sent to the New York Times or, you know, it was Samuel Brill's name that, that was at the top of the masthead. And Gluck really was a smaller figure in the association. 
then as that started gaining steam and it got it, it, it continued to kind of get interest, he was able to get people like, as you mentioned, Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, who were the biggest movie stars at the time, thanks in part to Mary Pickford being a huge fan of Santa Claus. She'd done quite a few charity events throughout her life that were similar to what the association was doing, but this idea of playing Santa Claus, and she loved that stuff. So this was, this was perfect for her. And none of them looked too closely at the, the backstory. It was all they needed to know was this was a group that answered Santa letters. And there was sort of a, an amnesia that seemed to happen every year when the holidays rolled around, where people didn't really remember that the previous year, maybe a couple of years ago, this group had been shown to be uh, a bit shady. Uh, and they, they, the, the spirit of Santa was so strong that they were able to sort of forget that and embrace whatever the group was doing, uh, especially when Gluck's name wasn't the one in the headlines. Uh, so it ended up be coming back kind of throughout the, the, the 1920s. And I think a big part of that too, was this was just a time of, you know, it was the jazz age. It was optimism was at its height. People were making tons of money. It was just like a, an exciting time. People were, it was a great time to be Santa, you know, that was, people were being generous and, and excited to, to kind of contribute in some way. So it was really the a perfect time for it. The Gluck would throw these huge parties that would have the, the stars of the day would come and, and major musicians, you know, Fanny Bryce would be there and, and, you know, Doug Fairbanks and all these other characters. And all the while Gluck would kind of be quietly off to the side. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be the one in the headlines. He wouldn't be the one they were talking about, but he was the one managing the books. He was the one collecting all the donations and overseeing all of the, the, the inner workings of the group where it had shifted really from being this volunteer-run operation to really being more of a publicity machine that was generating gifts and, and donations to the, the kids, but also plenty of money going into Gluck's pocket as well. What eventually happened to the Santa Claus Association and John Gluck? Yeah, so... You know, as I was saying, the jazz age was this really exciting time. Money, money was flowing everywhere. This was really after the First World War was really when formal charity as, a, as an industry took off, where prior to that, it had been very informal. So you really saw, you know, large scale charities popping up as well as just tons of shady, questionable charities. There was all kinds of street solicitation and mailers going out asking for all all, of, all sorts of noble causes. And the Santa Claus Association was right in the middle there of, of both of these formal and uh, questionable charities. But people didn't ask a lot of questions about the Santa Claus Association for much of this time, mostly because it is such a charming idea. And, you know, why not? It, it seems like such a worthy charity to, to, to be out there and it's a, a worthy cause. There was one person who was very skeptical of the whole thing, who was never not much for Christmas sentimentality to begin with or really any kind of charitable sentimentality. And that was New York's public welfare commissioner, who this guy, Bird Kohler, had begun as, as the, the comptroller for, for the city and was had this real accountant sort of personality. He He wasn't easily touched by a warm, you know, heartfelt story. So when he took over overseeing all of the public charities and hospitals, he approached it as an accountant, as, as this kind of tough, cold-eyed, uh, you know, a personality who was saying, okay, what's, what's this group do? What's it actually aiding? How does this actually help? Where's the, the evidence that it's doing what it's supposed to do? So he ended up imposing quite a few regulations and restrictions on charities and trying to kind of rein in this wild west of charity that was going on in the city. Things like uh, requiring a permit for, for street solicitors and centralizing charities under one large group called the Welfare Council that would sort of ensure that there weren't people receiving, if there was a family in need, they wouldn't be applying to three different charities to get aid that one charity could be responsible for ensuring that they were helped. So he, he was doing all these reforms in city charity. Uh, and then kind of through his work at the welfare council, he got wind of the Santa Claus association and the work that Gluck was doing or the, the questionable work he was doing where sure there was all these claims about how they didn't touch any money. They didn't touch any gifts yet. 
there were also these requests for donations that he was making in the press. So the, the, the trick was for Kohler that he, he didn't have like hard evidence of glut kind of contradicting what his claims were that, yeah, he asked for, he mentioned, you know, the need for, for, for money in the press, but he wasn't, uh, there, there wasn't like a, a real hard evidence of anything questionable that the group was doing. But what changed in, in 1927 the group had been going for 14 years at this point was that they sent out a mailer asking for the first time, instead of saying, Hey, can you, here's, here's a child's letter. Can you answer it? You know, no need to send money, just bring this gift to the kid or mail this gift. Instead, this mailer went out before any letters had even come into the post office yet from, from kids, not asking for, someone to help answer the letter of a, of a child or even to, to donate their time, but just saying, can you send us a hundred dollars? And that was, that was it. That was the whole appeal. Just here's the great work we do. Send us a hundred dollars. And that was enough for Kohler to kind of raise a case against the Santa Claus association. And this was a pretty widely sent mailer that Gluck had sent out. So with that in hand, he, demanded that Gluck come to his office and they had a, a uh, kind of a dramatic showdown and Gluck still managed to evade him. It was, it was getting close to Christmas and though the pressure was on, he couldn't get, he couldn't get enough evidence together to prove that the Santa Claus association was doing something illegal. There really wasn't, there weren't the laws in place at that time to challenge a group like that. So, he had to, it took him a second year to really go after the association and its work. And eventually what he was able to do, he, he got the association to produce a lot of its books and found in the, the numbers or the lack of numbers that there was tens of thousands of dollars that were unaccounted for, that there were essentially, by, by this time, by the late 20s, there was really nobody who was involved in the group outside of it's publicity spokespeople and Gluck and nobody was responsible for the money. Nobody was tracking it except Gluck and the actual gifts that were being delivered. They didn't really track that too closely. So there was no way to really prove that, you know, how much of these donations were actually going to help the children and help the Santa Claus purpose and how much of it was just going to Gluck. Uh, and it was pretty clear kind of from Gluck's track record with these other organizations that most of it was probably going to Gluck's pocket. So, Though Kohler was not able to convict Gluck, he wasn't able to make a case to shut down the association on legal grounds. He, there was the loophole of the fact that the existence of the Santa Claus Association was based on the permission of the New York City postmaster. And that without that, they don't get Santa letters. So that was the loophole that ended up uh, the one that Kohler used to uh, kind of undo the Santa Claus Association. Are there any organizations like the Santa Claus Association that exist in 2016? Yeah, definitely. And, and kind of, and, and despite Gluck's shadiness, he, he does, he has left a legacy of, of really, if it weren't for him, there, there wouldn't have been this sort of business-like organizational approach to it. And uh, after the Santa Claus Association was disbanded, the letters went back to the U.S. Post Office, which for a while it went to the dead letter office, but eventually, kind of informally, post members of the post office started answering the letters themselves. And then that has since evolved into what you can do now, which is a group called Operation Santa Claus, which is run by the, the U.S. Post Office, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, and they they don't go to all the trouble of investigating every letter. You have to kind of use your own judgment on that. But what they do do is they do work much as the association had originally promised to do, which is simply as a clearinghouse for Santa letters. So you can go to the post office. I just did that a couple of weeks ago. You can go in select cities. I think it's 15 cities uh, throughout the country, but you can also do it remotely if you choose. But you go into the post office and you can look through a stack of kids' letters and find one that you that's speaks to you. Uh, the, the addresses and everything have been redacted. There's just a, a number assigned to it. So if you find one that you like, I, I found one that the kid was asking for Legos, that uh, like Star Wars Legos. And I was like, okay, that's that's a nice, uh, easy to get present too. There was some that were asking for iPads and really elaborate gifts. So you can find the one that you respond to and then go get the gift. You bring it to the post office uh, with that number on it and they deliver it. So 
it's all pretty above board. Uh, they have a, a pretty sophisticated kind of cross-referencing of different databases to make sure everybody, you know, to, to make sure the right gifts go to the right kids and that everybody comes away happy. And uh, it's a pretty nice uh, system. And there's also, uh, I know in Indiana as well, the, the city of Santa Claus, Indiana, also answers letters, but not with gifts. They just, uh, if you write a letter uh, to Santa and address it to Santa Claus, Indiana, they will respond with a, a special stamped uh, letter from Santa Claus himself. So that's a nice little gift, even if it's not an iPad or, or Legos, but you can also be assured that nobody's doing anything shady with the uh, donations that are coming in. Where can people who want to learn more about you and your book go? Yeah. So about me uh, at my website, which is alexpalmerwrites.com. And the book uh, is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and any, uh, any good bookstores out there. So you go, it, it should be widely available. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Cool. Thanks so much, Eric. Great chatting. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.